1:28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Matthew 16, verse 18. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 33. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Acts chapter 17 verse 6. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. The word of the Lord. I have chapter 7b outline that the readings just came from. Please kind of look up at me and nod your head yes if you got it. Everyone's got that. Okay. All right. Are we ready, Ken? Okay, today we're going to continue with chapter 7. Uh, John is on vacation, and so I'm doing both messages today. And today we're going to continue with chapter 7 of the Kingdom of God series. On the back of your outlines, but you had uh, A3 this morning, and you have seven, that is 7A3, and now you have 7B1, uh, which there will be 7B1, 7B2, 3, and 4, uh, and 7A3. Uh, on 7a there will be one two three and four which will allow us to finish chapter seven in eight messages what i'm trying to do is average about seven messages per chapter so that uh we'll finish the series in two years and um if you note remember we we actually did uh chapter one i believe in one or two messages and we did chapter two in two messages so uh, that gives us some room because when we get to uh, chapter 5, we'll probably not be able to do that in eight messages. We'll probably do that more in like 15 to 20 messages because we're going to look at the theme of the kingdom of God all through the Old Testament, uh, what should be called the Hebrew Scriptures, but is commonly called the Old Testament, misnamed. So we'll, you'll understand that more when we get past chapter 5. So... Um, 
Uh, today, uh, we, if you remember, we were midway through chapter 3, and for a number of reasons, we skipped to chapter 7, and I'm going to finish out chapter 7 over the next uh, three more weeks after today, and then we'll go back and finish chapter 3 and move on through. So to this morning at the 9.30, we did chapter 7A3, and we're, we've been looking in 7A, where there are seven inevitable institutions of the kingdom of God. That's the name of chapter 7 overall, the seven inevitable institutions of government or of Christ's kingdom. And changing the world by the plan of Jesus is to progressively change those seven. All seven of those fell with the fall of Adam and Eve. And humanistic man always wants to reverse the order of how he changes these things. Humanistic man wants to pass laws without changing individual hearts. And bi biblically, the way you change the world is by taking the gospel and discipleship with individuals further. We've lived in a time since the Great Awakening uh, over the last 350 years, we're, sim we're in a similar period to the book of Judges, where there's been a gradual decline in, in the quality of our Christianity, and there's therefore been a gradual decline in the morals of our culture. And this goes back to approximately 20 years before our war for independence. There have been various things, such as our civil war and uh, all sorts. Of, I mean, I can't, that's way too much to get into the Christianity that emerged after the Civil War. There's been a lot of things that have contributed to this, but uh, biblically, the culture has been declining for 350 years and has, has accelerated at certain points. And it accelerated in the first half of the 20th century, accelerated more in the last half of the 20th century. And so the work of what it will take to do to see what God intends to do and what God will do, because as we studied in chapter 3a, God has an eternal decree. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. He has predetermined that his son will come back to receive a kingdom prepared for him. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the water fills the seas. That's why if it takes two, three generations to relay the foundations of what biblical Christianity is supposed to be, that's a goal worth having. And if few, few can understand what we're doing or saying in our time period, that's okay. Because God is sovereign and he will inevitably open the eyes of greater and greater quantities of his people in church to understand all the elements of the restoration. And we've been talking about how the, the th first three elements, the individual, which be, self-government begins with the effectual call of the gospel. It proceeds to conversion, rebirth and conversion, I should say. It proceeds through sanctification and maturation, and uh, etc. Uh, it, it proceeds by taking the three tools of grace further. One of the problems with our complacent Christianity that's half compromised with the, with the world and the culture today is that we don't take any of the three tools of grace very far. Bible-believing Christians are at, at an all-time low of, ha of knowing the Bible. Almost no one you meet has ever understood that the word disciple comes from... Uh, Words that we get mathematics and agonies from. 
<laughs> in other words, to be a disciple is to sit at Jesus' feet like Mary and study his word. And very few people have ever put hours of studying into seeking the heart of God. But the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. You cannot say that I love to worship God and I love to be intimate with him and I really love to praise him if you don't love to study his word because that's you're saying a contradiction. You can't know the mind and heart and the deep things of God unless you know thoroughly his word because he speaks through his heart and his heart is in his word. So we've been looking at that in terms of re the restoration of the individual. At the 9.30 session today, we looked at uh, the restoration of the family. That, If you missed that, please listen to the podcast. Uh, so many of us need to hear that. If you're single, you need to hear it. If you're married, you need to hear it. If you're divorced, you need to hear it. And then uh, next week, we'll actually finish 7A4 with looking at the restoration of the church. Uh, I have reasons I want to finish that next week on uh, instead of today. But again, the seven in, in institutions are individuals, families, religious institutions, which for Christians is the church. Of course, in other religions, it's the synagogue, the mosque, the humanist church, the, the Boy Scouts, the Hitler's youth movement. Uh, the, you know, the Soviets had uh, church things for their kids, et cetera. They're educational systems economic organizations and systems, media and social mores, and civil government. Again, humanistic man wants to change things in reverse order. They want a civil government that controls monetary policy and controls uh, the, the, the economy and, and all, all these things, and that passes laws about what's right and wrong and who can do what and so forth. But that doesn't really work. You can coerce through force, but you can't change hearts through force. Nobody really ever converted at the point of a sword, even though Islam believes that you can convert people that way. And so do humanists. You can't, you can't, you know, you can't, it's like the little kid whose parents made him do something and, and, and uh, finally goes, well, well, I'm, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> and uh, you maybe could force them to sit in their high chair, but you can't force them to want to sit in their high chair. And uh, only God can change individuals and only God can save the family. We ha we're in a free fall of what the family's all about in our culture since the 60s. We talked about that in that message. Next week, we'll talk about the church and all the, all, almost all churches in America are making no serious attempt at being biblical churches. They would say we apply the Bible to salvation, by which they mean we apply some of the key narrow points of the gospel, but almost no one even make a pretense of trying to make our church structures, our church ministry, mission, our church eldership, our church community, our liturgy, or any of that biblical. What Grace Christian Fellowship is about is making everything about the church biblical. And if it takes two or three generations for that message to be popular, I'm okay with that. So um, that's what we'll look at next Sunday. Then as you go through the seven institutions, it, it's really important to understand this. The, the family... The individual and the church are a three-legged stool. I could easily reverse the order of those in a way. 
as we're going to see there to, uh, when we conclude next week, they're inextricably intertwined because the church proclaims the kingdom and makes disciples, and it's the church that produces healthy individuals. But a church can only go as far as its healthy individuals rise up and take take dominion and become that second and third and fourth tier of leadership in a church. And a church is a family of families. And a church is as healthy as its family, but its families, but the church should produce healthy families. You know, uh, any any of the couples in our church, especially the couples that lead our elders and lead Kids Rock and different things, will will, will tell you that when we get together, I don't want to hear about the ministry issues first. I want to hear about how's the marriage, how you doing, communication, love, respect, what's going on, because that's the foundation of their ministry. Your financial situation, your career, your vocation, your love in your marriage, all those things are where Satan will come at to take down your ministry. So we'll look at that more thoroughly next Sunday. The next four institutions, educational systems, economic organizations and systems, media and social mortgage and civil government are going to be chapters B, 1, 2, 3, and 4. We're gonna, because it's when the three-legged stool is restored that we can begin to infiltrate those systems. Okay? And that is what Jesus means by being the salt of the earth. What is happening in Christianity today is people realize, wow, we got a bad political situation. So you get Christians running off to do stuff in politics. And before long, the, po the political system has discipled them into liars, cheats, whatever, that, 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 because, that's what the, because they don't have enough depth in Christ and, Christ and, and integrity to invade that system. And there's many a Christian school teacher who is uh, wanting to be salt and light that would do well to go deeper with their understanding of Christ and his worldview. Because they're synchro they're you know, they're working in a synthesized synchristic view of religion where they're partly humanist and partly Christian. And so, you know, our approach is not go out and save the world. Don Quixote or whatever, and take on windmills. Our approach is to take you further first. So when you God raises you up, people do, people have so little faith in our culture. Do you know God can take you from obscurity to national prominence like that? But what are you going to have inside you when he does it? Nobody wants to pay the price to get ready. And that is true of all these other institutions. We, we need the three-legged stool thoroughly restored, and then we can invade educational systems, then we can invade economic systems, then we can invade uh, media, social mores, then we can uh, invade civil government. A few Christian politicians strategically placed is, to, is not going to change America in any biblical sense. It's way too late for that. We have to rebuild from the ground up. We have to produce radical Christians that are 10 times more thoroughly Christian than the average Christian today. If we don't do that, all is lost. However, 
the Bible declares that all is not going to be lost. Jesus is Lord, and he's the king of those who would be kings, and he's the Lord of those who would be Lord, and his kingdom shall rule over all the earth. In Revelation, it, uh, which it says the kingdoms of this world have become, the Greek is are have become. Uh, they are becoming, they became, they are becoming, and they will become the kingdoms of our Lord and, the, and of his Christ. And he shall reign. The first thing that has to happen is Jesus has to become Lord in the three-legged stool. Jesus has to become Lord of your family. He has to become Lord of the church. He said, I will build my church. Guess what? The church does not belong to the members of, nor the elders of Grace Christian Fellowship. It belongs to the Lord, and if we lose sight of that, God will come in judgment to us because he loves us that much. When we make him the king and the Lord and put him in his proper place, God will abundantly bless what we do. If you want, if you want to see your life more abundantly blessed, go further with the Lordship of Christ than you've gone before. So today we're going to look at uh, uh, once the three-legged stool is restored, what what do we do about educational systems? Now, I, the reason we had the readings we did was to save some time discussing salt, light, and leaven. These are all ones that we would have discussed had we finished, uh, and we will discuss as as we finish chapter three. The, in the Bible, there is a dominion mandate, and that starts in Genesis 1.26, to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. That's repeated to, to Abraham in Genesis 12.1.3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God has always wanted a people born of one regal head who will, whose progeny, whose seed, will infiltrate in salt and leaven the earth. That's what the parable of the mustard seed means. The parable of the mustard seed means that Jesus walked around with no more than probably 120 followers at a given time. At times, he preached to multitudes and fed them. He appeared to 500 after the resurrection, but only 120 of those were impressed enough to actually obey him. And they became the foundation of the church. In the book, in Acts chapter 1, it gives, tells us clearly the number was 120 that did what he said to wait in Jerusalem until they received power from on high, something the church would do well to do again. Don't go out to start ministering until you get baptized in the Holy Spirit in a Pentecost sense and begin to learn how to move in the power of that anointing. Lead worship in that anointing. Proclaim the gospel in that anointing. Pray in that anointing. Prophesy in that anointing. Move into spiritual gifts. And then you'll be ready to move into any kind of ministry. Many of us don't take the Holy Spirit far enough. It's frankly something I'm going to talk about next Sunday is, you know, frankly, our, our worship has become a little bit flat in Friday nights and Sundays. And, uh, uh, and that's been across the board with whoever's leading the worship because Frankly, we're just not worshiping. Uh, you know, we're kind of starting to fall into that you know entertainment thing where people 
you know, you sing a song that everyone's quiet waiting on the next song. <laughs> you know, the truth of the matter, that's kind of an entertainment view of worship. It's very predominant in our culture, but you're worshiping and continue to worship in between the songs. Fill your mouth, fill your heart with the attributes of God. Worship is, is, God, is a journey of praise that begins with proclaiming the redemptive acts of God, primarily the gospel. There were several gospel songs today. And it, and it ends in, a, in an adoration that you're focused on the attributes of him because you're seeing him and you're going, wow. He's awesome. He's immutable. He's transcendent. He's eternal. He's holy. And you begin to see and experience the attributes of God in your spirit that you've stored up in your mind by reading scripture and by reading the attributes of God. And you get liberated to the point where you're not so darn afraid of what everyone around you thinks. I would say that, that a, a high percentage of our people still fear man in terms of worship. You know what? Forget. You know, I want to be sure I'm not singing too loud that someone I'm singing, anyone can hear me. Man, if you're still at that point, I pity you. Really. And I don't want to sing too loud because somebody might hear me. Wow. Well, that little sidebar on worship is no extra charge. Okay, so we get this whole thing of there's a dominion mandate mandate to be salt. Salt stops corruption. Be fruitful, multiply, produce a people that will subdue the earth as vice regents under the king of kings. That commission was given to the first Adam, but he fell, so now it's given to the second Adam. That commission was given to the first father of our faith, but now, but he, his people fell, and now it's given to the, the people of the Son of God, and so forth. Creation, dominion, fall, redemption, restoration, salt, restrains corruption, light overpowers darkness. Only one little candle can dispel a lot of darkness. However, Jesus tells us, let your light shine in such a way that your that your other people might see your good works and glorify God. How does he tell us to do that? Put your light on a lampstand. What's a lampstand? Revelation 12, 120. Revelation 120, not 12. Revelation 120 says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Of course, that's what a lampstand is. A lampstand is a place where you put a lot of, of little individual lamps. In the magnification effect, one can send ten thousand fleeing, and two can, or one can send a thousand fleeing. The scripture says, and two can send ten thousand. Uh, the more you get into community, the more you get committed to a body of Christians, the more you get committed to taking church beyond see you on Sunday, the more light you will have. Because you know, I we've actually f struggled against this for years, and. And now I believe we're well past this, and it's starting to shine. For a lot of years, a lot of people kind of that were in our church, that first 20 or so people that we kind of got stuck at that point for quite a few years. And it was, uh, you know, like six or eight or 10 people matured, and 10 or 12 didn't. And it was because the 10 or 12 in their hearts said, oh, well, 
that radical stuff and stuff, that's the Weisses. And I, you know, I wasn't, you know, that just doesn't apply to me. Hopefully we're totally past that now. You're called to be a radical Christian and your model is Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, Jude, Barnabas, Luke, and so forth. Dorcas, uh, etc. You know, let's really believe that we're supposed to be looking like a, a bunch of little Pauls running around. That's really important. So uh, we get all that. So let's flip over. And today we're going to look at educational systems. That was all the introduction. Uh, priority two. Priority one is to restore the three-legged stool of the individual government, the family government, and the church. We all get that? Re that is absolutely essential. The more that is restored, the more we can effectively move into priority two, which is to take the kingdom into education, economics, media, and civil government in that order. Now, so point five B on the back, educational systems. Uh, if you want to know more about this, go to calcedon.edu or read the books of Rusash Rushduni. He was known as the father of the Christian school movement because uh, there's three kinds of people in this earth. There's those who make things happen. There's those who watch things happen. And there's those who say, what happened? <laughs> and uh, they're called initiators spectators and taters couch taters they well what happened uh, most people are either taters or spectators and so what happens is after the fruits of a movement work its way out then people see it you know you're here today hopefully because you're what's called a first hour man or woman where you you see a vision of a restored church changing a whole earth and a whole culture That's pretty big goals for a little group of people. Uh, Rush Dooney was running around in the 1950s and saying, hey, the Supreme Court has laid certain cases down and so forth that, that uh, really from 1880, 1860 on, uh, with, with the rise of Darwinism, the, the compromise of what's called classical Christian, Christianity and Darwinism, the public schools are going to be increasingly be hostile to Christianity. And they are going to try to, uh, to raise generations of people that will obliterate the church. And therefore, we need homeschoolers and Christian schools. And what we need is the three-legged stool. We need them to become thoroughly Christian. That's been the problem. Many of our... Whenever our Christian schools have increasingly become less Christian. And basically, he was known as the father of the Christian school movement. If you want to get to the philosophical underpinnings of what Christian school movement should be about, read a few of his books, especially regarding education. Now, so here's some, uh, some points. I want to make five points about education. Oh, boy. Uh, look at the time. Yeah, you can shoot me later. Uh, First, educa education is inescapably 100% religious. All education is brainwashing. 
Ephesians 5 talks about how husbands are to wash their wives with the water of the word. Jesus said, you're already clean because of the word I spoke to you. You are always washing your brain. Every movie you watch, everything you read, uh, you are washing your brain. Because all education forms a worldview. It forms values and it forms character. One of the things we're up against, uh, like for instance, when I teach classes at Sinclair and I try to assign a little bit of homework and you have to actually, the, the fact that they have to read a 100 page book for a college class, they're like, what? That hard? Because what's been formed in their character is very low standards of studiousness. That's a word or not, I don't know. They're not, there's not very low, there's this, been this aversion to work. Part of the most, one of the most characteristic aspects of the, the, the sinful nature and its revolt against maturing, maturity is sin, sinners don't like work. And that value gets formed as the, as the, as the great inflation goes and the standards go lower and lower and lower as they have for over 60 some years, really. Really, they, the, at, shortly after the Civil War, the standards in our public schools began to decline. Uh, as, that pro, as that has continued to progress, it's been ingrained in the character of the whole culture. America actually used to be known for frugality and industry in our work ethic. If you study uh, uh, one of the best historians of all time, Max Weber or Max Weber, in uh, his classic book called The Protestant Work Ethic, basically he, and uh, if you go back and study Alexis de Tocqueville and his, uh, a French philosopher who came to study, uh, and historian who came to study American culture and why it was doing so well and so forth, they, they basically said it's because of the Protestant work ethic, which we've lost. Education is inescapably religious. It forms character, values, and a complete worldview. Now, there's, the, there's a presupposition or there, uh, of neutrality or objectivity or neutrality. That is a myth. You actually have to assume Darwinism first to believe in objectivity. According to the Bible... Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus said, John 17, 7. Thy word is truth. God is the right subjective evaluator of the universe. There is no objective truth. It's all God's truth or anti-God's truth. And it, the right subjective perspective is God's for science, mathematics, economics, what have you. And the idea of neutrality is, the, is the, a lie of humanism. Oh, I just want to do objective science. There's, no, you don't. All science has presuppositions and paradigms and worldviews and assumptions about reality. Study a subject. We covered this in my, uh, at Wright State this past year in my uh, survey of the Bible class. But study a subject called epistemology. How do we know things? 
the biblical view of knowledge is because the scriptures have revealed them. You are not the ultimate arbitrator of reality. And the sooner you get converted from that, the sooner you'll actually be a biblical Christian. All claims of sovereignty are total. No king allows another king in his dominion. The scriptures declare every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And that goes, that's actually a quote from the Old Testament. Every knee already, and already does bow. When Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, even in the earthly ministry of Jesus, uh, his, his incarnation stomped on Satan's head the first time. He grew up in wisdom to stomp on it again. In, in his baptism in the spirit and his in his uh, successful temptations in the wilderness, he stomped twice on the devil's head. And even before the crucifixion, the demons cried out, we know who you are. Have you come to torment us before the time? They knew the ultimate reality. They knew that, you know, this, they knew that the gospel that's preached today of retreat and defeat and the church is going to hide out and we're not going to conquer the world. They knew that was wrong. They still know that's wrong. That's their doctrine that they've been able to successfully uh, control the church with over the last 120 years. Because whoever runs from the battle and is afraid first gets mopped up. Whoever knows that their king is God and that they, they, his dominion will be from sea to sea has the courage to continue to fight the battle. Humanistic people will not be happy until they have shut down every Christian school and every homeschooler. That's why homeschools and Christian schools have been on the attack from state courts and Supreme Courts from the beginning and will continue to be. Just read a thing recently where someone was mocking anyone who does this or that or that, you know, as being unscientific. They will, they, uh, believe me, they don't like homeschooling because the state wants to be able to indoctrinate you in its worldview. And a public school is a synagogue of Satan. A public school is a temple for, for darkness. And that's why we love public schools. Do you know many a dedicated principal, teacher, or whatever is working in public schools, but if they don't know Christ, they're working blind. And because of the state of the church, most of the Christian works are working half blind. And it's not that we don't, when you make, we have this idea in our culture that if you make a statement like that, that you hate, hate or you're a hater. That's nonsense. That's the key to love. That's the total key to love. There is a philosophy in Christian schools that is total and totalitarian, and they want to spread the gospel of Darwin and of higher criticism and of unbelief on every, and, you know, moral relativity, cultural relativity, uh, etc., and with it goes lower and lower standards because they don't want critical thinkers. Now, you have to understand that many a principal and, and teacher working in the school is, doesn't want all that. 
But believe me, on the federal level and so forth, if they really wanted to fix schools, they would. The battle for the earth is total warfare. But we don't, as Christians, we don't go in chopping heads off. We go in setting an example of service, of sacrifice, of caring, of love, to win an opportunity to be heard and to give them a message that will liberate their souls. Uh, in, ed- in Christian education, there's a biblical view of ownership and stewardship, and it's this, that the, the re- you know, uh, call children services, this and that and that. And some of that you have to do or you're, you know, if you don't want to go to jail. But the truth of the matter is that I, the very idea uh, that's being assaulted is the parent's responsibility. Now, unfortunately, whenever parents are irresponsible, it gives strength to that idea. But in the Bible, parents are the primary educators. That's very important to, to hear. Kind of interesting that all of our families with kids are not here, but uh, hopefully they'll listen to the to the um, whatever you call it podcast or whatever. Uh, parents are the primary educators in the family. Parents do the catechism in the Christian faith. You know what? Please send your kid to a church that will have a great catechism in the Christian faith. Send him to a Christian school, but understand that's a supplement of what the, the dad is supposed to do. In biblical times, the father was the primary educator. That's why God chose Abraham to be a father of fathers. And he did it so well that his people still exist, even though they actually went two, over 2,500 years without having an actual homeland of their own. They still retained their, their religious, culture, and educational identity and no other people group in the earth has been able to do it. Every other people group in the history of mankind that has lost its geographical location has lost its identity. The second leading one is, is that's still running is the gypsies. Uh, but they certainly don't come back as far. Parents are obligated to protect the children from, their, from all enemies, spiritual and physical you're obligated to protect your children from the from the enemies of ideas now a parent may delegate some of the education uh in other words you don't have to necessarily be a homeschooler but you are still responsible for who you delegate it to to supplement the education And you still remain accountable to God for your choice of where you sent the kid and how much you interact with the teachers. As a general rule, private schools are better than public, and some private schools are better than others in terms of of Christian things. Now, some some common scenarios homeschoolers versus christian school mix many many uh parent christian parents choose that 
I would just encourage you, check the curriculum, the philosophy, and the results. In other words, don't abdicate your responsibility. Oh, we sent our kids to this Christian school. That's it. Meet with the teachers. Understand the philosophy of the school. Understand how good a job they do. Um, some, some people get into economic situations through divorce or bad financial management or whatever that they can't afford to homeschool. They maybe don't have the education to homeschool. I wouldn't encourage you to be a homeschooler if you're not willing to work really hard to get really biblically educated and understand the curriculums you're using. But uh, public school is sometimes a necessity, but if it is, supplement it vigorously with biblical Christian education. Don't you dare. That, if, you, if you are in a place where you have to send your kids to public school, then you actually have more work cut out for you. Make sure you give them a better education. Now, our last next thing I want to talk about is... Uh, is education's most important stage, infants and toddlers. Boy, I'm, I'm going to go past time today. I guess I'll get yelled at. This is very important stuff. It'll make a very important message. First of all, infant, you know what uh, the whole problem with the whole send my kid to school and let them do it is by the time they go to school, it's too late. If your kids are just starting to learn to read and phonics and stuff in kindergarten, first grade, they're hopelessly behind. And is the reason we do the whiz kids thing is if kids get behind to a certain level by second and third grade, they never catch up. Is that correct? As, as a general rule, the trajectory are that they just get further and further and further behind. If you, uh, second grade or about is the primary time to try to rescue that. If you can move them up like two grades worth in one year, then you've, you've probably rescued that kid's potential for education. The way you, I, I, I'll tell you, I wish, I can't believe Dave and Taylor are not here because I, I mean, I am so happy about the, I spent two evenings at Dave and Taylor's house this week and I've been kind of thinking a lot about Israel and how much I love Israel and how, what, what a wonderful kid. And, she, and they're really setting a standard that I hope will, will help everyone in our church in years to come. That kid gets a lot of love, and love is spelled T-I-M-E. It's amazing. What we have today is, you know, we have parents who want to keep clubbing and parents who want to, you know, be on five softball teams and parents who for play golf and parents who just don't have much time to spend with their kids. When your kids are infants, you need to be goo-goo in their face and talking to them. There's actually a, a kind of retardation that happens, a disassociativeness that happens if kids don't get enough face time attention from adults. And it's permanent. And it's primarily what they get in the first two to four years. Second, so love your kids but don't look at the culture for a standard of that. Look at people like Taylor. She's doting over Israel like all day long, all the time they're doing stuff. Most kids, parents neglect their kids so much in this culture. It's, it's just downright heartbreaking. Secondly, I'm on point four here of Roman numeral five. Develop a love for reading. 
in the child long before they go to kindergarten. Read to them every night, every day. Read in front of them. Kids who see their parents reading will want to read. I would say that's the primary reason for my, my four kids had considerable academic success. The primary reason for that is they saw their parents reading all the time. And they like began to think as a, when they were two or three years old, reading is cool. I, I, I wanna know what they're doing. Read to them every night, every day. Help them develop a capacity for problem solving. I'll tell you the difference between those who are good in math and those who are not. Those who are good and bad in math have a, have a long, sustained, deep character problem with quitting too easily. Those who are good in math, when they run into problems, have a long, sustained character habit of saying, I got to figure this out. And they just keep trying again and trying again until they get it. And that will go take them further vocationally, music. There's a total relationship between people who are really good at music that are beyond talent, but actually really understand music. They also always are good at math. Why? And they're always good at computers because they're all the same. They're, there's a kind of creativity that, uh, that that's involved. As Einstein said, music is the highest form of mathematics there is. Music is all math. What is an A note except 440 vibrations per second? And every time you change the octave, if you want to go lower, it's 220. And when you want to go higher, it's 880. It's all in its time. And, you know, I remember playing a certain song on the piano when I was 17 that was by a, my favorite rock band at the time called The Who. And they had been classically trained musicians. And, and the, I, I, I had a hard time because I never had played a song that was like in 6th, time or something like It was like in some time that's like, I'm like, no, who, every, you know, almost all rock songs are 4-4 four, four time or 3-4 or, uh, quarter time or 3-6. Uh, you know, what it, it was like 6-11 time. And I was like, oh, yeah, there was so much syncopation and, and difficulty in the math that it was a really hard song to play. So I get on my knees and prayed that I wouldn't get fooled again. Uh, <laughs> so some of you will get that joke. Um, a capacity for problem solving. You can develop that with, that's what all the little puzzles and put the square thing in the round hole and da-da-da-da-da-da. And as, at age appropriately, you can begin to say, spend time with them and say, nope, we're not going to have dinner or we're not going to go for that walk or you're not going to get that ice cream until you put together this whole puzzle. Because people who learn how to problem solve before they get rewarded develop character. Believe me, infancy is the most important formative time. Most of us are swimming uphill from not having done this in infancy. Uh, learn obedience and respect for authority. If, uh, I encourage you, if you don't get this point, there get James Dobson's book called Dare to Discipline where he basically identifies that the number one problem we have is our sin nature. And the number one thing about sin nature is pride and rebellion. We want to do our own thing and we want to have our own opinion. And you can't grow in Christ till that dies. And you can actually help that die in, in uh, kids that are below five years old by the way you raise them. Don't discipline your kid for making a mess and spilling the milk 
and finger painting on our walls and everything, discipline them for disrespecting or disobeying authority. Get one, get that issue straight and don't sweat the small stuff. I remember a certain alcoholic guy getting all upset at me because he'd seen our house and goes, how can you say your kids are Christians when their rooms are so messy? And I said, well, look at their grade reports and uh, talk to them and see the clarity of their mind. I could care less whether they keep their room, how, you know, that's uh, something for them. Of course, usually neatness is a sign of an organized mind, but don't sweat the small stuff. Sweat the big stuff. And obedience and respect for authority. Because you know what? You will never get past the place in life. You look at people who are struggling and who are not struggling People who are not struggling accommodate various kinds of authority in their life from the parents to the church to the educators to the to the bosses at the job. They, they can deal with authority correctly. Lastly, under education for infants and toddlers, exposure to many things. I remember taking certain guys from the inner city out to Clifton Gorge to hike. One of them, as we drove through that little town called, is it Bath or what's the one on the way to, to Yellow Springs? There's a, there's a little teeny little town. And he, he actually said to me, wow, this was a little town out in the country like you'd seen on Mayberry. He said, I saw that on a 1950s TV rerun once. I didn't know there were really towns like this. And I thought, oh, my God, he's never been out of this city. He doesn't realize that there's 73,000 towns like that in America. Because he's never gone. You know, I remember taking a kid from my baseball team who was eight years old to the zoo. And as we were talking on the way down, we discovered this was the first time he'd ever been further than three miles from his house at eight years old. Kids need zoos. They need hikes in the woods. They need museums they need to play on a, an organized sports team and find out whether they like that or not i gave my kids by the time they were 10 freedom not to play on the organized sports teams but when they were five six seven they played on a few because i wanted them to have that experience they need to have individual sports like pugilism or whatever wrestling uh they need exposure to many things they need music lessons there is almost nearly, I don't want to say 100%, but boy, it's up there. Correlation between kids who have music lessons at a young age and kids who do well in school. One of the most common things you, you see among parents who really care about their kids is almost all parents who really care about their kids have all sorts of extra lessons. Music, gymnastics, ballroom dancing, ballet, whatever. But music is the key, really. You're, you're, if you grow up knowing and appreciating and understanding some things about music, your life will be enriched, period, forever. I, I feel bad for people who don't play a musical instrument. One reason sometimes when I'm discipling someone, if, if they've moved into where I'm discipling them more intensely, the reason I, I make them learn a musical instrument is so their life will be richer. Lastly, our kids rock house. We're way past the time, but this was worth it. So 
I can get yelled at later, I guess. Uh, Kids Rock House. I did stay on time the last several Sundays in a row on the first thing. Uh, today I was two minutes over. Kids Rock House is a redemptive strategy. Uh, nobody listens to our podcast, but don't go out there and say public schools are a synagogue of Satan, which they are. But don't say that outside our, our outside our church. They're, they're statist, uh, educational, and all, all uh, every society has religious institutions. And secular humanism's religious institutions is the public school. They are, believe me, those who control the funding for federal education and so forth are way more concerned that they're indoctrinated in the prominent, uh, the, you know, predominant uh, vote for the welfare state and all that than they are what the results of their education is. And if you don't believe that, study more. Don't dismiss that opinion if you haven't read 100 books on it or more. Believe me, that is the goal of the federal whole statist, humanist view of education is to use it as a temple of, of values, relativity, uh, low character expectations, low educational expectations, and especially an anti-supernatural, natural worldview that says all religions and all ideas are relative. The only possible idea that's not right is Christ. Everything goes from Islam to, to humanism to, to Buddhism and so forth as long as you don't bring somebody who says, I am the way the truth, and the life. Because what we in humanism, what we know that we know that we know is that you can't know anything <laughs> for sure. In some, a religion that claims that it's the truth is the most abhorrent thing to a humanist. Now, we go in there. If you go in there with that message, you might as well just shoot yourself in the head and go home. That's not a good strategy. In the, in the Gospels, it says, with many other parables, Jesus was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear. You know, sometimes I work with troubled marriages, and I'll say to the, say to the husband, I pick on the husbands more because it's usually more their fault. I'll say to the husband, not always, but, uh, you know, you know, you've got to repent and build this character and so forth and quit trying to change your wife because you don't even have a platform to be heard yet. You know, young people get get excited and they get saved. I've dealt with a hundred young people who get saved, filled with the Spirit. Oh, man, my parents are Christian, but they don't, they don't get all this. I want to take them further. And I say, well, here's how you take them further. Shut up! And go home and sweep the floor when you're not expected and do the dishes when you visit. And get if you're off to college, get really good grades and grow in Christ in such a way that they have to say, there's more to that than just growing up. That must have something to do with this deeper Jesus thing that they're into. Live your life in such a way that they can't have any conclusion but that. You know, Jesus was not received in his own hometown. He could do not many miracles there, right? 
because of their unbelief. Because why? Because they changed his diapers. And they saw him playing soccer in the streets with his friends. And they had too natural of a view. Don't go trying to change things too fast. What we need to do at, at the schools is go in and serve, be exemplary in our character, go the extra mile in cleaning up before we leave. We want to make the principals love us, the teachers love us, the janitors love us, the kids' parents love us, and the kids love us. Now, that's not easy. But if you do that and they start coming on Sundays and getting uh, reciting the creeds and worshiping the Lord and with the songs, and, and uh, that's why I'm going to be making a strong push for more people to follow in Jordan's footsteps and become men mentors. That's what we really need is more and more people and get mature enough to be a mentor. Because, you know, the reading the scriptures around the table and the Tim Keller's Catechism for Kids and Leah's Old Testament Bible lessons and my New Testament Bible lessons and reciting the creeds and worship and then extra things like meeting up at Clinton Gorge to go hiking, uh, having kids. All of that is how we infiltrate in, in uh, who loves the most will really win out. They can have eight hours a day of brainwashing against Christ. But if we love better and more and more consistently over time, many will find their way to Christ. Amen.